Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I've got some updates for y'all on the show. I know it's been a while since we released a new episode and we haven't released a new interview since we lasted one with geneticist Razib Khan. Uh, I was really, really glad to uh, put out that episode for y'all. And uh, overall, I was very, very happy with, uh, with the production of that show and the fact that he was willing to come on was really, really fantastic. I'm very grateful to Razib for doing that. As you can tell, this show is uh, from not going to be another interview episode. We've got some guests that are pending, some big personalities on Twitter, as well as some academics and elsewhere. But so far, we have yet to arrange a time uh, for those episodes. Um, so please be patient. Uh, the month of September was a pretty bad month for me, and I wasn't really on top of the show as much as I should have. And that's that's completely my fault, so I'll take full responsibility for letting you guys down on releasing the new episodes. But the show is a work in progress and we are committed to our intellectual goal of the pursuit of new political theories. Um, So with that being said, I want to introduce today's topic. Today is a solo episode where we're going to dig a little bit into a topic of interest of mine that has been floating around in a lot of political discourse lately, in particular over the summer was getting brought up a lot, uh, especially if you were paying attention at all to conservative politics. Uh, this is mentioned on Tucker Carlson show. Darren Beatty has talked about it. Uh, Michael Malice, if you know him, he has also talked a lot about this concept. So uh, let's just go ahead and get into it. Today we're going to be talking about anarcho-tyranny. Anarcho-tyranny is a word that was coined by Samuel Francis. Samuel Francis is a far-right, very fringe, um, conservative uh, intellectual and academic. He was an advisor to Pat Buchanan and is very, very uh, big part of the a lot of the paleo-conservative movement. Uh, but in his later years, he was sort of ostracized. Uh, in general, from mainstream discourse because of his views on race and immigration. He's a little bit of a a white nationalist. If you look at the SPLC, they have a profile on him. They consider him to be one of those. To be honest, I haven't spent a whole lot of time looking into his background or his bio uh, with regard to those views because those views, frankly, are just not that interesting to me. I don't find them to be uh, very convincing. And overall, they're just not something that uh, I'd like to spend a lot of time on on this show. So regardless, uh, though, I, I, I think that we can separate a thinker's ideas from who they are as a person. Uh, I know that that is a controversial statement to make nowadays in and of itself. But the truth of the matter is that he did have some uh, very important contributions to um, conservative intellectual thought. And as you can tell with his influence, on uh, Pat Buchanan was certainly a cultural force, at least for a period of time uh, while he was still still working. Um, so he coined this term anarcho-tyranny, and that may, uh, at first glance, uh, sound like a contradiction in terms. And in fact, uh, I think even Samuel Francis himself would acknowledge that there is a contradiction, or at least an apparent contradiction, in those two terms. He described it as an, a uh, Hegelian synthesis 
of, uh, of those two sort of uh, states of, of governance or states of uh, political organization, that is anarchy and tyranny. Those are the two states. And uh, if you recall, um, Hegel's dialectic involves uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? So uh, you've got the thesis, which is tyranny. You've got antithesis, anarchy, and the synthesis being, of course, the uh, Portmanteau uh, anarcho-tyranny. So let's get a little bit into that uh, term today and uh, see if we can't um, cover some new intellectual ground around it. The purpose of this discussion is not to say for certain whether or not anarcho-tyranny is a valid concept or whether or not uh, we even may or may not live in one. That is not really uh, my primary interest. Um, I just find this idea interesting because of the fact that it's been floating around and people have been throwing it around in sort of very mainstream places like on Tucker Carlson tonight and elsewhere where you wouldn't normally expect to see um, this kind of, I guess, deep deep um, ideological, you know, political theory type terms being used. And when the general public uh, hears these kinds of words, uh, you know, they're hearing them mostly from those kinds of sources, these very mainstream, uh, normie, if you will, um, sources. And so they're not necessarily in a five or ten minute soundbite on, uh, on national television getting a great idea about what this term actually means and, and where it comes from. They're just sort of hearing it as a talking point. And so I wanted to explore it a little bit more and um, talk a little bit about what um, the coiner meant when he first used it, as well as uh, why it's suddenly showing up in our discourse now and what that might mean. Okay, so Samuel Francis coined this term anarcho-tyranny. And uh, as I've already told you, it is a synthesis of a state of anarchy and tyranny. And those two components are present, they have to be present in the political organization or the system at the same time. Uh, in his initial characterization, at least the one that I found that goes uh, as far back to um, a post that he made uh, that's accessible through the Wayback Machine on, um, <clears throat> on uh, Chronicles uh, called Synthesizing Tyranny. And um, this post, he says he originally uh, coined it in 1992, but I believe this post was from April of 20, 2005. Um, and in this, in this post that he makes, uh, Synthesizing Tyranny by Samuel Francis, he describes it, uh, and the example that he gives is the presence of, of high levels of illegal immigration into the United States, right? So this is where he begins. He begins with this, um, this immigration argument, and of course... Uh, before we get into that, let's get into the abstract uh, definition of anarcho-tyranny itself, and then we'll get into the exact example, both that Samuel Francis used, as well as um, more contemporary examples and, and the ones that are kind of reflected in, in why it's getting thrown around in these sort of right-wing circles right now. Okay, so to summarize, anarcho-tyranny means that there is a system in place by the elites in which the normal uh, law-abiding citizens, and largely these are these would be you know the middle class or um, you know just in general the law-abiding citizens, the working class, the the middle class, and, and even the working poor uh, would all get lumped into this, and they are being selectively um, oppressed by the elite through through selective enforcement of the law. And the way this works is uh, there is selective enforcement of the law in 
and and it only goes in uh, one one direction, which is that the law gets selectively enforced against the normal law-abiding citizens, against the citizens who are largely uh, not really involved in criminality, not really breaking too many laws um, or laws that are that serious, but they're nevertheless feeling sort of the full weight of the state. The, the, the absolute boot heel is coming down on them. And this is a, a means of population control, essentially, effectively. Um, and it can happen in a democracy. It can happen in non-democracies. Uh, there are examples that people cite in the literature uh, following uh, Francis that, uh, you know, perhaps the United States may have even set up an anarcho-tyranny uh, in Afghanistan while they were there. But essentially what it means is that the elite are allowing for selective enforcement of the law. That is, they're not enforcing the law on the true criminals, uh, real criminality in terms of, you know, robbery, murder, um, rape, assault, these kinds of things by uh, sort of the, uh, the unwashed masses or, um, or just, you know, the criminal elements in society, whatever you want to call them. And he contends, uh, Samuel Francis, that is, in his argument, that the state has the ability to, to be enforcing these laws against criminals. So they could be solving criminal cases. They could be preventing uh, the destruction of property, the loss of life, the, um, the assaulting and the intimidation of their, their normal citizens, but they're choosing specifically not to. And instead, what they're doing is they're allocating a lot of resources to, um, you know, dealing with essentially, I mean, less than petty crimes, not even petty crimes, but, you know, uh, an example he brings up is uh, the issue of like hate speech in the UK, right? So you've got, uh, let's, let's just say, uh, for the sake of argument, you've got large amounts of... <laughs> stabbing sprees going on in London and the police for whatever reason don't seem to be able to stop all this knife crime and they don't seem to be able to solve uh, all of these uh, these issues that they're having for example um, with rape gangs uh, in Rotterdam and elsewhere but but then um, as soon as a citizen uh, in the UK makes a you know an offensive tweet uh, about Islam or something like that on Twitter suddenly the police are showing down at their door and um, he would bring this up and in fact he did bring this up in this uh, specific article as an example of uh, anarcho tyranny in action of it being manifested uh, and the argument that he made about illegal immigration that I brought up earlier uh, you could say that it's xenophobic or not that's again not really the the interest of this uh, exploration that we're doing we're, we're more trying to cover this intellectual ground uh, he would say that what's happening is that you've got tens of millions of illegal immigrants in the United States, and there's no reason that the, uh, the borders couldn't be enforced. There's no reason that the citizenship laws couldn't be enforced and that these people couldn't be uh, prevented or removed from coming in. And, uh, but instead, what's happening is because it's beneficial to the, the, the elites that are present, both economically and otherwise, uh, they're choosing not to uh, take as much action on this uh, as, as as they otherwise might, and instead, uh, you know, choose to, you know, I don't know, enforce heavily, you know, traffic fines and things like that. So <laughs> that's not a very strong uh, representation of his case, but it, it it's just a starter to get us to get us a little bit into it. Okay, so you've got this situation set up where uh, there's selective enforcement of the law. And the direction in which it goes is uh, heavily against the law-abiding normal population as a form of intimidation or even punishment for cultural non-compliance with elite culture, 
right? So according to Francis, and this has been mischaracterized by some other people who don't fully understand the argument. According to Francis, the primary motivation for anarcho-tyranny, for setting up this kind of system, because you might ask, well, why would the elites, you know, want to harm their law-abiding citizens? Those are the most productive citizens. Those are the citizens that make society function. Um, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And the answer that he would give would be that actually what it is is it's an outgrowth of the culture war, right? So uh, the elite culture is antithetical to the existing sort of uh, traditional normie culture that exists amongst uh, the broad swaths of the, you know, the bourgeois and uh, the petty bourgeois, I guess, um, and, and the middle class and so forth. And because they want to keep the existing culture intimidated and scared and in line, um, they're effectively manipulating uh, the, uh, you know, uh, dredges of society or the, the less uh, sociable parts of society into doing their dirty work for them. And they can keep doing this as long as they're not actually enforcing the law against uh, the people who are doing the real crime. All right. So, so for, for Francis, the motivation is not simply economic. You could argue that the problem of illegal immigration, for example, is more about wealth transfers, but if you cast it, uh, you cast it narrowly as a a, cla a type of class warfare or a type of uh, you know just economic exploitation, uh, then you're kind of missing the point. Because for Francis, this is really about culture. This is really about um, uh, gaining compliance among the regular population and really oppressing them and suppressing them and and punishing them for refusing to adopt elite standards of, of culture and morality. And you do it because you can't do it through the police, because you can't do it through the military, or at least um, you have to have a, a reasonable cover and in, in, in it's uh, grounded in rights in most places, uh, then you can actually just allow the, the criminal underclass to do it for you. And then, uh, and then you can also, you can just use the police as a sort of... Uh, you know, enforcement against uh, the, the regular people. Right. So why is it being used? Why is this term getting thrown around then in the year 2020? Why is it getting thrown around on Tucker Carlson tonight? Why does Michael Malice want to talk about it? Do we actually live in an anarcho tyranny? Uh, whatever, you know, as, as we've established it thus far. That's that's an interesting question. And as I said, I'm not actually going to answer that for you. I think that it's something that um, you should think about, but it's not something that uh, I believe I have the answer to, and, and, and it's not something that I'm actually interested in answering, frankly. So, why do I think that it's being brought up? Well, the reason I think it's being brought up is because I think that you're starting to see elements of what Samuel Francis had described as anarcho-tyranny in the operation of our society. In particular, when you look at the uh, the issues with you know speech laws and so forth that are that are very big in Europe and the fact that they're being enforced as we saw, talked about earlier over other forms of crime that are much more damaging and much more harmful in a tangible sense than uh, anything you know that you could say that would be offensive on social media or anything like that. Uh, but um, I, I want to take us back to the American context. So let's stay out of Europe for now. Let's stay out of Afghanistan. Let's not make this an international issue, and let's just talk about what's going on with it appearing in American political discourse, in mainstream conservative discourse in the year 2020. All right, 
So here's the big fish. I think that the summer protests were a manifest example of Samuel Francis's version of anarcho-tyranny. Let me explain. What we had over the summer was, first, the coronavirus lockdowns, right? So every law-abiding citizen, if you were in a state or a city that had lockdown um, procedures in place, was basically staying home and quarantining and, and wearing masks in public and so on and so forth and doing effectively what all of the authority figures and the elites were telling them to do to be a good little citizen and maintain... Uh, <laughs> maintain uh you know good standing and and help sort of with the communal effort to contain the virus right and so we were all doing this and then what happened well george floyd died and again i'm not interested in getting into this race issue i'm not interested in talking about black lives matter i'm not interested in even talking about george floyd i just want to talk about what happened this summer and why this term which is a very obscure sort of academic political theory term started appearing in our discourse Okay, so then what happened is after this incident, it's suddenly okay to protest, right? You've got protests going on in the streets, and very quickly, uh, all the lockdown orders uh, just got thrown out the window, right? Um, suddenly, you could have uh, 100,000 people gathering in, in Manhattan uh, or Chicago or Portland or wherever. You could just have a giant crowd, and as long as you were protesting uh, against police brutality and in favor of this identity movement, uh, then suddenly uh, it appeared like none of these orders uh, even mattered anymore. Okay? And it quickly, those protests in some places turned into riots. You had, uh, you had looting, you had burning of buildings. Uh, of course, the entire city of, uh, of Minneapolis uh, got, got, got hammered by this. Um, and these were not crushed. They were not suppressed by, by the law enforcement, or at least... When law enforcement tried to intervene, they were they were heavily hamstrung, often by local governments, but in some cases by state governments as well. And the federal government also uh, was delayed in their response in handling things like quelling the unrest, the civil unrest in Portland, for example, uh, because of the fact that it would make the administration uh, look too aggressive and, and, and look bad. And so the administration essentially allowed for uh, <clears throat> allowed for the um the protests and the rioting and the looting and so forth to continue to happen in the cities which is, of course is punishing mostly uh the law-abiding citizens you can say whatever you want about oh it's just property or oh it's just corporations but the truth of the matter is that real people died and real people lost businesses and their livelihood as a result of this um and it's not just nameless faceless corporations small family businesses and so on and so forth were actually uh seriously harmed by this and in general, for quite a while, I mean, not all aspects of the media were doing this, but a lot of the media was really, you know, um, carrying water for this. They, they were refusing to denounce the, the, the protests as, as, as riots. They were refusing to even call them riots. And, you know, famously, there's that picture of CNN where the anchor is sitting and talking, and there's literally a building on fire in the background. And the Chiron on the screen says, uh, mostly peaceful, right? Um, and so if you're at all on the right or even just, you know, red pilled beyond uh, mainstream narratives, you didn't really buy into the fact that these were mostly peaceful protests. You knew that these were riots and that they were causing a lot of damage, um, but they, they weren't being stopped because it was basically in the best political interests 
of a large swath of the of the elite to have them continue, right? Um, all right, so so we have the anarchy component. So, but but where's the tyranny, right? So, uh, the 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 population is already on lockdown. I mean, you could argue that that's tyrannical, but I think that um, there's a little bit of more room there to say that well. You know, they were just sort of listening to the orders because we didn't know a lot about this virus and we were trying to maintain it. And yeah, there was an exception made for these protests, but it's it, it's a little bit murky. You're not exactly standing on on the highest ground. But I want to turn to the case of the McCloskeys, right? So the McCloskeys in St. Louis, I think, is the prime example here that we're going to use to argue that there was a state of anarcho-tyranny or at least anarcho-tyranny may be present in in in, in its true form and it, and it, it I believe that the reason it's got gotten pushed into our discourse is not just the lockdowns not just the riots not just everything that happened with the media uh, and institutions so forth covering for these but I think what happened to uh, the McCloskeys is a prime would 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 be pointed to if Samuel Francis was alive uh, as a prime example of it uh, as the perfect antidote uh, anecdote sorry for what this concept means okay so if you recall the McCloskeys in St. Louis had this large um, very very nice multi-million dollar house that they had built I believe they are uh, defense uh, I'm sorry I believe they are um, <laughs> attorneys and uh, they worked primarily with um, victims of, of various kinds of you know injuries and so forth right so um, these were these were attorneys um, they're they're a very powerful couple they had a lot of money they had been rebuilding this house I think for like 30 years or something like that and so they had this large beautiful classical looking mansion uh, with a large amount of property also fenced out around it, okay? So they essentially had like a private street in the middle of St. Louis. And what happened with the McCloskeys was there were protests. There were protests going on in St. Louis, and the protesters decided that they were going to break into the gate and that they were going to enter into the McCloskeys' private property and threaten to um, essentially destroy, burn down, you know, maybe even kill uh the the McCloskeys who were living there and and it was just two people it was just a man and a wife and they tried to call the police to let them know that there was this angry mob that's suddenly uh literally in their property not not just outside on the sidewalk uh they were in a restricted area that was already private that was fenced in they broke down the fence and they came in and they started to effectively surround the house or at least walk outside it and yell and they're carrying signs and they're threatening, you know, that they're going to loot it and burn it down and so forth. These people are scared to death, as you can imagine. And what happened to them was that they called for the police and the police said, we're not going to come. We're not going to help you. Now, these are two totally upstanding citizens, highly productive citizens, people who have made a lot of money they made their money legitimately they didn't rip anybody off they're not like the Sackler family who made their money selling opioids to the population killing hundreds of thousands of Americans they didn't commit fraud as far as I know um, they were two very wealthy uh, very hard-working well-established well-known lawyers in the area who had largely uh, up until that point the support of their community and lots of uh, good standing as far as I I'm aware but nonetheless 
when the mob was at their door, the police refused to come. Not only that, they had uh, they had already had a private security firm, uh, many private security firms that they they you know could contact, and their private security also refused refused to come because they didn't want to deal with putting themselves in that kind of danger and trying to single handedly uh, deal with this mob or potentially get into some altercation that might end up, end up with them in prison. And so, when the mob was outside their door and nobody was coming to help. They did the only thing that citizens can do. They grabbed their own personal firearms um, and they stood outside and they tried to defend their property and, and they tried to uh, ward off the mob so that they wouldn't do whatever it is that they, they were going would have done otherwise um, to that house and, and potentially even to the individuals that were living there. And so they brandished their weapons. They didn't leave their property. They didn't leave... Um, the, the confines of their, uh, in fact, they didn't even leave their porch, uh, let alone uh, their property. But they, they, they stood outside their house and they, they put up a stand and they, they let them know that they, were, that they were armed, that they were heavily armed, and that they were going to defend themselves if nobody else would. And eventually the mob, uh, you know, passed by and uh, cooler heads prevailed and they decided that, you know, hey, it's probably not worth getting shot uh, to try and attack these people um and and so they walked through and they left but what happened afterwards that's the tyrannical part so following following this incident you would you would think you would think that after something like this the city would feel really really bad and that they would apologize and they would they would demand answers from the police department about why they didn't come to defend their own citizens and uh, perhaps even there would be, you know, a lawsuit, which I think is is pending um, for the damages uh, for their inability to sort of protect them from this. Um, but instead, the exact opposite of what you think would happen happened to them. The city prosecutor decided that they're going to prosecute the McCloskeys, the victims in this case, for brandishing their weapons right under under a, under a, a brandishing a firearm law for defending their own property. And so instead of going after the people who were part of the mob, who threatened to burn down their house, who broke into their gate, so that's trespassing right there, uh, they decided that they were actually going to prosecute these two <laughs> wealthy lawyers who did nothing wrong except try to try to defend their house and stop it from being looted and, and potentially destroyed. Um, and that is that, that right there is the tyrannical component, right? Now, um, eventually, they did they did receive a pardon for this uh, from the governor, so they didn't end up. I, I don't think they're going to face any jail time, and and I'm guessing that if they do have a lawsuit, a civil suit of some kind, that they're probably going to win it because they're pretty good lawyers uh, based on the uh, amount of wealth that they had accumulated and their reputation and so forth, and the fact that they honestly they handled that situation quite well since nobody got hurt, there was no altercation, and they managed just with the two of them. To, to stop this large group of people from going any further. But that was an example. It was a prime example right there of what you would see of, of, of anarchy mixed with tyranny because there was the anarchic component, which was the, the mob, the raging mob. And then there was the tyrannical component, which was the response of the city elites, of the city officials, of the government itself, that is entrusted to protect its citizens and instead uses the full power of the state against them. 
Now, the McCloskeys put on a pretty good um, PR campaign. They went on they went on Tucker Carlson. They were very outspoken. They refused to back down. Uh, they, they you know they they made sure to set the record straight. Um, and in fact, their house got raided anyway by the police. The police raided their house. Um, they seized a bunch of their firearms, and uh, and and overall, um, the the raid turned up nothing. There was nothing illegal in the house. All the firearms were completely registered legally. They were allowed to have them. Um, and so, despite the best efforts of this, frankly, evil prosecutor, um, there it doesn't doesn't appear like they're going to have any trouble with this. But when this story came out, and when when the McCloskey started going on television and talking about what happened to them and putting the word out, um, and and when we started to see as citizens in this country the video of the mob outside of their gate and the two people just standing there, the man and wife with guns trying to defend themselves with nobody going, showing up to help. I think we could all imagine ourselves being in a similar situation. And many Americans don't own guns. I live in a place where not a lot of people, well, I live in a house where people don't believe in owning guns. Um, but I have other relatives that do. And of course, I'm, I'm located in Michigan. So lots of people around here uh, do have firearms. But a lot of people, especially in the suburbs, especially in nice places like where the McCloskeys live, believe that it'll just never be a problem for them because the police will just show up and uh, they'll show up when you call and you just don't have to worry about it. But the truth is that that could happen to anybody. You know, all you need is one, you know, one bad city government, one bad, um, you know, prosecutor, one, uh, one cowardly police force, and suddenly you're on your own. And it's a very, very, very dangerous situation like that. When, when you're in a situation like that, they could have ended up having to, uh, you know, shoot their weapons. They could have ended up killing someone. Um, probably if the mob had attacked, the mob would have eventually gotten their way. I mean, I, I don't really know. Uh, maybe maybe there was someone in the mob who was armed even. I mean, it could have been really, really bad. But that's the reason why this term was popping up in our discourse. <clears throat> and that's the reason why you're starting to hear it more lately is because people, especially on the, the right end of the spectrum, are getting the sense that the elites, the people that are running this country, are really not on their side. And if you're a law-abiding citizen, you're actually going to get punished. You're actually going to get repressed for just trying to be a normal person and just trying to follow the law. And what they're seeing is instead all of these all of these criminals, a lot of the people like um, like the Antifa people in in Portland, for example, are just getting bailed out, or the prosecutors are selectively not not even um, going after these cases. Um, and it's really starting to look like a, a really, really dark scenario. So that's what the term anarcho-tyranny means. And this is just a short little lesson on that, on that term for the day, since I think a lot of people don't really have a good grasp of it. And when you hear a quick little five-minute segment on television, you're not necessarily getting a good um, historical or grounded intellectual understanding. Um, and so I just wanted to go over that with you guys. Um, I'll be sharing more knowledge on the podcast as we... Uh, as we progress, and hopefully I'll be doing more um, solo episodes like this where we cover various topics in political theory. I will be having more guests on the show. We're going to get uh, a lot of a lot of really cool people in the next few months. Um, but honestly, I just I, I let it get out of hand. I didn't um, do everything that I could to uh, keep the roster roster lined up. But we've got some really great people that are in the works and and we're working on setting up a date. So look forward to that, and I promise there'll be more great episodes coming and more interviews coming. And let me know what you think of this. If you like this episode, 
uh, hit me up on Twitter, hit me up uh, in the comments on YouTube, wherever you uh, listen to the show. And also let me know what you think. Uh, do we live in an anarcho tyranny? Do you think it's a valid concept in itself? Uh, what do you think of the fact that it's uh, sort of a right-wing term? Could there be a left version of anarcho-tyranny? I mean, I don't see any reason why anarcho-tyranny has to be merely a concept that's used by paleocons or people who think that, you know, society is being overrun by, you know, immigrants or, or uh, you know, Antifa people or whatever. It doesn't have to be uh, a left-right um, ideological divide here. I think that there are people on the left who would be very, very sympathetic to uh, this kind of argument. Um, and so ah, I just want to hear what you think. Let me know. And uh, I look forward to uh, broadcasting soon. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day, guys.